Warning, this episode contains adult themes and situations which might not be appropriate for young children, unless they're cool. Hey everybody, welcome back to Crazy Money. This is your host, Paul Ollinger. My guest this week is Laura Belgray, who has a message for all you people who aren't on the career path you want to be on, or if your kids aren't on the path you want them to be on. If your new college grad son or daughter is unemployed, sleeping in their childhood bedroom, drinking soda, and watching all my children all day, fear not. Laura has been there, and she turned out okay. As she explains in her new memoir, Tough Titties, on living your best life when you're the effing worst, sometimes it's okay to be unoccupied so that when opportunity finally calls, you're there to answer the phone. The book, which your husband refers to as Loser Sex in the City, is a collection of hilarious, and I do mean hilarious, I laughed out loud a hundred times reading this book, unfiltered stories about her life. I think it's like, my wife was asking me to explain it to, and I was like, it's like, I think like Nora Ephron meets Tina Fey meets Chuck Klosterman with a little bit of uh, Sedaris hilarious memoir stories thrown in there. Tough Titties is a celebration of failure, late bloomers, messy career paths, and lessons learned from indiscriminately blowing bartenders in the 1990s. I told you it wasn't appropriate for kids, so it's no wonder that Kelly Ripa said of her book, I didn't want it to end. Though slow out of the gates, Laura eventually did find her professional thing and now celebrates the wonder of being paid real money for authentic self-expression. In our chat, Laura and I discussed the primal fear of being disliked, how being a loser in the sixth grade is related to her success in mid to late adulthood. We talk about pre-Giuliani Times Square, BS social media and wellness gurus, middle school mean girls, leg warmers, and why Deb Fishbone is a shallow basic bitch. Also, saggy porn and getting to paid watch TV. And yes, I said titties. The word will come up several times. I'm going to say it again. Titties. Also, I know that all my children is no longer in production. Feel free to substitute TikTok, Roblox, or Pornhub. This, ladies and gentlemen, is Laura Belgray. The amount of things you share in this, by the way, hysterical book. Thank you. I LOL'd at least 50 times. I snorted a good bit. I snorted a number of times behind the wheel of the car. I was listening to the audio version. And, you know, you never know when publicists send you a book. And it's like, it's about, what is it? It's a memoir about that. I'm like, oh, okay, I don't know, maybe. And it was really super funny. But man, you really put yourself out there. (laughs) You might say that, yes. Yes, I do. And a lot of my readers know me well. You know, it's not the usual thing where you put out a book as a new author and nobody knows mm-hmm. who you are. I have a, an audience already who who feel like they know me as a person. So I think this book might have been a bit eye-opening for them. This is your newsletter audience? Yes, exactly. And the audience for that is what, marketers or copywriters? Who's the... It's a mix. It is solopreneurs, entrepreneurs, marketers, copywriters, people who want to learn copywriting for their own businesses. And then a lot of people who just want to do something creative and with their life and their career and be inspired. And they find me that way. Just somebody saying, oh, you should follow, you know, you should sign up for Laura Belgray's emails because I write a lot about career and work and creativity and all that. The name of the book is Tough Titties. I don't think titties has ever been said on this podcast yet. 
And there we go. I had an adult film star, Maitland Ward, talk about all kinds of other things, but I don't believe the word titties came up. They were referred to many times and in several different contexts. However, the book is called Tough Titty. How would you describe what this book is? I would describe it as a memoir and essays about coming of age in New York in the 80s and 90s and early aughts by way of many social humiliations and (laughs) um, (laughs) dating fails, career fails, or as my husband likes to call it, loser sex in the city. That's it in a nutshell. That's a great description. So you really focus on your failures. Why do you believe that sharing failures is important? Well, for one thing, it's fun. I just really enjoy writing about them because they're real and memorable. And that's what pours out of me most easily. But I think it's important because it's so helpful to other people. It's such a relief to the reader, anybody who is exposed to somebody else's failures that like, oh, thank God, it's not just me. I'm not alone. And seeing how someone deals with their failures and how they are able to cope with them or put them in the past, I think is a relief and give someone per- someone else permission to say, oh, good. Like, it's not that devastating. It's not that tragic. My life isn't over. It's not ruined. And maybe I can think of it as having happened to another person, someone in the past, a me who was in the past. So like that distance, I think, gives people a bit of relief and distance from their own failures. And it's in direct contrast to these curated visions of ourselves that we post on social media to make our lives look perfect, that we are both striving and not striving and succeeding without trying. And yet we're up at four in the morning doing ice baths and drinking mushroom tea and cleansing ourselves of our sins of we're posting 64 pieces of content a day to create a social presence, but we're really not trying to. It's really our authentic selves that we're representing, which is all just a bunch of horse shit at the end of the day, right? No one's authentic self gets into an ice bath. Forget it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. It's all a lot of bullshit, I think. I mean, I think that there are some people who do all that and Mm -hmm. want to show it, but they don't show the other side of it. They only show it as, boy, I didn't want to get in this ice bath or, wow, was I afraid to do all this? I I had my doubts. I had these thoughts. What will people think of me, et cetera? And they'll show it that way. But then they they are always the hero in that story who did it, who felt the fear and did it anyway, rose to the occasion and got in the ice bath. They're never the person who's like, and so I skipped the ice bath because fuck that shit. Yeah. It's about finding a way through a messy life and finding Mm -hmm. success despite lots of wrong turns, bad guys, bad decisions, (laughs) Uh hilarious anecdotes from your young adulthood, starting as early as sixth grade. So let's go there. Tell me about the New York of your youth. Uh, The New York of my youth. Well, I was out and about on my own at age 10, and my best friend and I would take the money that my mother gave us to go ice skating in in Rockefeller Center and spend it instead in uh, video arcades in Times Square, where perverts would rub up against us and we didn't we just didn't want them to mess up our game right. of, probably. <laughs> this is 
This is pre-Giuliani Times Square. That was as seedy as it got. Right. The Times Square that today would not post a billboard of my book title, Tough Titties. You can't say titties in post-Giuliani Times Square. Back then, it was just a gritty, dirty place where, which I loved. It never occurred to me that a person could grow up anywhere else. I didn't know how people did it. Like I would go to visit my camp friend in Vermont and like in Middlebury, Vermont, which is a place made of patchouli and ice cream. And (laughs) (laughs) those kids, they were the ones who would say, aren't you afraid of living in New York? Like, do do you ever get mugged? Aren't you scared when to walk out on the street? And meanwhile, they were all doing drugs and going to third base and driving with older kids and going cow tipping and doing Chinese fire drills, which I never understood the point of. That friend actually had a a bottle in her underwear drawer. She called it Betsy, and she told me it was liquid methamphetamine. I don't know that methamphetamine exists as a liquid, but I've always, always pictured that amber bottle of liquid meth called Betsy in my Vermont friend's drawer. So anyway, I, <laughs> that's all to say that New York was considered a dangerous place, but I lived a pretty uh, clean life and didn't do drugs and didn't get mixed up in alcohol. And then when I started going out after high school in the 90s, like I graduated from, sorry, after college, I graduated in 91 and started going out to bars because I hadn't really done that thing called like going out and being hot and getting guys and being a hoe. So I thought I made up for lost time in the nineties and everyone thought that I I was a professional bar hoe. Basically everyone thought that I was a drunk and I was there drinking diet Cokes because I wasn't much of a drinker at all. Let's go back. Let's before we get to the early nineties, same year I graduated from school. Unfortunately, I wasn't hanging around the same bars you were at the time. So you grew up on the upper West side. Yes the classic Jewish Upper West Side upbringing. I'm guessing your parents had a lot of Philip Roth on their shelves, things like (laughs) that. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. (laughs) And the joys of Yiddish and Jewish jokes and all those books. Tell me about the schools you attended. I went to Calhoun, which was across the street from our house on, it was on 81st and West End. We lived on 82nd and West End. It was very convenient. So I went to Calhoun from preschool through eighth grade. And that was, Calhoun was a very progressive school. It wasn't even called a school. It was called the Learning Center. And Mm. we called teachers by their first names. We didn't have homerooms. We had clusters. And the homeroom teacher was called the cluster advisor. And you could complain about the amount of homework. And the teacher would say, okay, that sounds fair. No homework. And uh, it was basically a learn at your own pace or learn at the pace of the slowest kid in the class kind of situation. And then I went from there to a very traditional all-girls school, Brearley, and both private schools, but there was still a bit of a culture shock between the two because Calhoun was kind of, you know, to use terms we're no longer allowed to say. Calhoun, I would describe as Jappy, and Brearley was old school, preppy, waspy. Upper East Side. Upper East Side, yes. Yeah. So you're going to school with some very wealthy kids and you had some mean girls experiences when you were in middle school. Yes. The real mean girl experience was in middle school in sixth grade. And 
I won't repeat the name of the school just to that's fine. <laughs> make I'm not looking to disparage any institutions <laughs> here. But yeah. That's for my other my other podcast about <laughs> about New York City's private schools. That, exactly. I have a massive <laughs> audience for that one, sure. You actually would. My gosh, parents were so obsessed with the schools in New York and everywhere else and LA and I'm sure Atlanta too. But anyway, yeah. So I had a best, best friend in fifth grade. She's the one I would go play video games with and we did everything together and roller skated up and down West End Avenue, et cetera. And we went to separate camps and we agreed. We had a pact that when we came back from camp and started sixth grade, we were going to take Spanish together. That was the year that you could start a language. And first day of school, we're all in the gym and um, assembly. Head of the school says, okay, you know, everyone taking Spanish, go to the right. Everyone taking French, go to the left. And I was like, all right, a la derecha. You know, vamonos, Beth. I'm sorry, Deb. I'm going to call her Deb. So vamonos, Beth. <laughs> Definitely and, not Beth. We're going to call no, her not, not Beth. Beth. Not Beth. <laughs> <laughs> Just like we're going to call Francis Coppola Martin Scorsese later in the, in the conversation. I'm sorry, what? <laughs> I don't know who you're talking about at all. So, <laughs> so yeah, I went to the right. You know, vamonos, Deb. And I looked around and Deb was nowhere to be seen. And there she was over on the left. The other Deb, who I called Mean Deb, was patting the seat next to her saying, over here, French. And my Deb went and sat down next to Mean Deb and they raised their hands in the air like champions and said, yay, French. And Mean Deb said, boo, Spanish. Spanish is for losers. So we, we know who she ended up voting for, by the way. So she stole my best friend and then proceeded to make my life a living hell for that whole year. She kept, kicked me out of my friend group, no longer invited to Pizza Wednesdays at Uptown at VNT, no longer invited to go play video games, Pac-Man at Baronet Card Shop. They bought leg warmers without me, which was probably the deepest cut of all. Um, <laughs> And you've been holding on to this since 1981, right? Yes, <laughs> and you finally much. get to, and you get to tell the story in your new book. Yes, and the chapter is called "Deb Fishbone Likes This" because it is about what she did to me in sixth grade, but really, it's about me hate following her, hate friending her on social media <laughs> in the current day, and finding her delightfully unremarkable. And being really thrilled to see that she is a basic bitch who just, the only thing I see of her, there's not that much to go on, but what there is of her in my feed or has been is her liking major retailers. So at the top of every ad, you know how it would say, so-and-so, you know, one of your friends liked this. So it'd be like Bloomingtails, Deb Fishbone likes this. Uh, Shop Bob, Deb Fishbone likes this. Right. I worked at Facebook when this concept of social ads was invented. We talked about like, oh, look, this is a new Tim Kendall came in and said, this is how the new ads are going to work. When you see an ad, you'll have contact, you'll have social context that you'll say, oh, because Deb Fishman likes this product, I'm more likely to like Zara or whatever lame retailers that Deb likes. It worked, but it didn't work in this case. Right. It didn't work in this case. I just have to digress for a second. This isn't in my book, but my dad had a bit of a porn habit. It was uh, age appropriate (laughs) porn in his 80s. And I was up late, like probably three or four in the morning, couldn't sleep, you know, the usual insomnia. 
And of course, I look at my phone and I open Facebook and I see right there, Eastern European older woman with her eyes closed and her mouth open in ecstasy. And it says saggy porn XXX. And on top of it, it says my father's name likes this. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. I I know what I'm Googling when we get off this. I will go to my uh, private browsing before I start tap, tap, tapping in <laughs> SAG. God forbid it would autocomplete and be like, we know what you're looking for. Yeah. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Are you looking for saggy so, porn? Figured. Yes. In what way does carrying around the scars from middle school inform who you've become today? I would say on the downside, it's still traumatic. It does scar <laughs> and... I do have that primal fear. I think we all have it, but it's reinforced for sure by being kicked out of your friend group and being hated on. That primal fear of being disliked, of making anyone dislike us. And then on the other hand, I know that it's made me probably a more interesting person, more a sharper person, more observant person. I mean, Like losers always become the most observant and funny people, right? So I think, you know, on the the real upside is that I have learned the lesson that being disliked cannot ruin your life, except when you're in sixth grade. In sixth grade, it can. That person has the power to ruin your life. But when you're an adult, I've learned that the key to success, to any kind of success that I care about, creative success, business success, is standing out. The very thing that made you a loser, that made you a target, maybe in sixth grade or whatever grade it was, is now the key to being a success and somebody that people gravitate towards and notice. Um, Whereas fitting in, once you're an adult and trying to succeed in any creative arena, is the kiss of death. So that's, that's a lesson that I've learned and always have to kind of repeat to myself when I have those fears that rise up that are so primal from that time, like, oh, no, someone's not going to like this, or someone's not going to like me, or someone's going to disagree with me. And that stings for a minute. And then I'm like, that is okay. Can't ruin my life. You recount a time a few a year or two later when you have a birthday party, and you, you achieved some modicum of success by inviting the people who were a stretch, but not too much of a social stretch. You had, <laughs> you had, aspirations to bring more popular people, but you didn't go to the top of the list, right? It reminded me of the time on the Simpsons when Homer said, bring me a bottle of your second least expensive champagne. (laughs) (laughs) That's exactly. Yeah. I didn't go top shelf. I went, (laughs) you know, middle shelf, not well liquor, but I went to the middle people who were, you know, a grade above, they were reasonably cool. In fact, there was someone in my class who used that term, like at the end of the, for the end of the year party, she was inviting people to. She came up to me and up to certain other people who were friends of mine and said, you're reasonably cool. Uh, I'm inviting <laughs> you to my party. <laughs> hey, whatever it takes, you know, yeah. just, as long as you're tall enough to ride the ride. That's exactly. all that matters. So you go to Wesleyan. How'd you pick Wesleyan? You don't mention the name of the school in the book, but you say you went to school in uh, whatever town in Connecticut. And I figured out. And then I read your New York Times wedding announcement, which we'll get to Ah. in a little while. (laughs) So like when you go to Wesleyan, what are you thinking you're going to be when you grow up? At that point, when I went to Wesleyan, I thought I knew I wanted to do something creative, 
something artsy. And that was always my vague goal. I didn't know what it was going to be in high school. I remember one teacher, an English teacher saying that I should go on to write reams and reams. I remember my heart sinking, thinking, oh no, because writing reams and reams just terrified me. At first school, I found writing to be such a chore. I knew that a part Mm. of me liked it. And I had when I was a kid, written, like scribbled for hours in a little black notebook, writing a novel that was a direct ripoff of Tom Sawyer or Huck Finn, anything Mark Twain. It was like, they say, write what you know. And I was writing about two boys rolling in the dirt saying like, don't you talk about my pa? But (laughs) (laughs) that's your that's your Andy Griffith uh, spec script. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So I had no at that age, like age 10, I had no inner critic, no sense of like, you're not good enough. And then, of course, the inner critic develops during, I guess, adolescence. And then you're like, oh, I suck at this. And so envisioning myself as a writer, as a professional writer was a little terrifying because I was like, I'm that either means sitting like writing novels on a typewriter in a garret. And by the way, this was, you know, the late 80s. So you did picture a typewriter, not a computer and not a laptop and being surrounded by crumpled drafts in a wastebasket and tears. And so that that was my vision of being a professional writer. But at the same time, I knew I wanted to do something with writing or something creative, uh, something at least writer adjacent. Why? Why? Did people tell you you were funny or did you feel like you had something to say? Yes, I did. I felt like no one used the term like a voice, like you've got, you Mm. know, you have a voice. Mm -hmm. But they would say, they would definitely tell me I was funny. I was editor of the yearbook, which by the way, is now looking back, I hope nobody ever digs it up who's not from my class. It's horribly um, (laughs) un-PC, but at any rate, I was editor of the yearbook and head of the, I think, no, not head of it. I played a lot of parts. I might say that I was the star of the senior show where we imitated the teachers. It was in high school. So I Mm. knew I I liked performing. I liked comedy. Uh, I had discovered David Letterman, not that I personally discovered David Letterman, but discovered sure. the show in high school and would stay up way too late watching it. And I bought there. Yeah. There was a Larry Bud Melman book that I bought and <laughs> memorized and I was obsessed yeah. with. So, yeah. yeah, I wanted to do something in that vein, but I didn't know what. Did you take a lot of writing courses at Wesleyan? Not enough. I should have. I should have taken tons mm-hmm. of writing courses at Wesleyan instead. I think the only creative writing I did was in my Psych 101 class, which was taught by a professor who considered himself, he claimed that he was he was a black lesbian trapped in the body of a straight white man. So the class wasn't so much about psychology as it was about expressing ourselves and smashing the patriarchy through our writing. So, oh, he'd feel very comfortable in 2023, wouldn't he? Oh, boy, would he ever. I haven't looked him up recently. I have to do that. See if he's still around. Hey, everybody, I'll be right back with Laura in just a minute. But I want to let you know that in the past two years, I've produced over 20 comedy shows at country clubs around the Southeast. We've got shows coming up at Atlanta Athletic Club. 
Marietta Country Club, and Richland Country Club in Nashville. If you'd like to see your club have a great date night friendly comedy show at your place where members can park where they know they can find a spot, they get the drinks poured the way they like them, they get to see their friends and have high class comedy right in their environment. Shoot me a note at paul at crazymoneypodcast.com. We'll figure it out. I also have shows coming up at comedy clubs, regular comedy clubs where everybody can go. Coming up soon in San Francisco, Austin, Nashville, and some other place that I'm forgetting. All my dates can be seen at paulollinger.com. Thanks a lot. Back to Laura. You don't position it as such, but here's some post-college career advice you give the reader. If your parents are willing to have you at home, sleeping in your twin bed, drinking diet sun-kissed, and watching all my children on the TV you got for your bat mitzvah, I say take them up on it. Be a disappointment for a while. Offer me some context on that quote. Yeah, well, that that is the lesson for me that comes out of the year that I spent. I mean, it was a full year that I spent pretty much doing nothing. I moved back in with my parents. I hadn't been gone long enough to call it moving back in, but I stayed I stayed in right. in my childhood bedroom, sleeping till noon, going out from probably 11 or midnight to 4 a.m. And in between going to the gym, buying crop tops, drinking Diet Sunkissed, and because you can never have too many crop tops in 1991 um, sure. <laughs> when you're going out like it's your job, right? Yeah, using the Stairmaster, getting Tasty Delight, eating cornflakes, um, having my mom clean up the bowls and empties from my room, empty Diet Sunkists. It must have been like having an addict at home, except with no drugs. <laughs> and, you know, that year of doing, and my parents were concerned. They would come into my room, sit down in my desk chair while I was on my bed. It's like, oh, no, here we go. And then the conversation would be, you know, how's your job search going? And I would always yeah. say, I'm pounding the pavement. Or they'd say, what are you doing out till 4 a.m.? And I'd say, I'm networking, which <laughs> is a generous term for what I was doing out till 4 a.m. Yeah. With guys, yeah. but some of the connections I made did pay off later. So that's a spoiler. But because I was home and not doing anything and had been fired from a couple of bartending jobs, the, the two jobs that I managed to get, which were te- terrible bars and they weren't what I pictured in bartending. And I was not what they pictured in a bartender either because I was home after being fired and still, you know, sleeping late and doing my thing, I was available when a friend called me one day and said, I am here with Lisa Birnbach. She's this author. I was like, oh yeah, I know who she is. Um, She wrote the preppy handbook and she's like, yeah, well, I'm here with her and we're revising. She's revising her college book, her guide to colleges and we're fact checking and we need more fact checkers. Can you come in? And I was like, well, you mean today? She's like, yeah, now. I was like, crap. Now, I was going to go to a step class and I was going to watch it. I like, <laughs> I didn't have the DVR that it was the, then the VCR set up to tape all my children and one life to live in general hospital. But I was like, fine, it is a job. It sounds like something that could be cool possibly. And I went in and that job led to everything else in my life. And had I not been, first of all, had I not been loafing around that morning, had I, gone out and gotten the job I was expected to get, like the kind Mm. that my friends had, 
you know, working at a top law firm as a paralegal or whatever is below paralegal and wearing pencil skirts and pantyhose and doing the things you're supposed to do right after college, I wouldn't have had that opportunity. I wouldn't have gotten to take that job that ended up being perfect for me and led to all the other opportunities. And also I wouldn't have gotten out of my system what I needed to, which was that year of being a disappointment and be and loafing. <laughs> and I don't know, I guess you might say loosely discovering myself. Usually people go abroad to do that and do something constructive, but. Right. And it bears mentioning that your porn addicted father was a <laughs> psychoanalyst, right? Yes. He was a former corporate guy who was a psychologist, right? Yes, that's right. How do you think they played it, your parents? Did they get it right by letting you mooch off them for an extra year? I mean, I think my patience would have would have drawn pretty thin with my kids in that situation. Yeah, and I think theirs did too. They loved having me home. Uh, mm. My father tried to build in boundaries and expectations and would say, I expect to see progress. I expect to see some momentum. Can you show me your, your steps that you're making steps you're taking? And I would circle like the classifieds. I would go through the classifieds pretty much every day and circle things to show him. And none of them ever panned out. It would be like anything that sounded creative, it would say creative opportunity. And it would turn out that either it would say you must be a self-starter, which to me was a deal breaker or detail oriented, which also was a deal breaker, or it would say, or it would end up if you, if you dug a little deeper, you'd find out that creative opportunity meant printer sales or phone sex. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, <laughs> oh my God, but I tried who would do printer sales. My printer God, have sales. you no self, have you no self-respect? Exactly. The self-starters. I know a bunch of people have did printer sales. I did sales, but not that that's the hardest sales there is knocking on doors. It would be torture. It is interesting. You found your way to the thing that you loved. And you said that being paid for self-expression became and remains my definition of work bliss. How did you stumble into that that eye-opening experience? Through a series of jobs um, in which I was variously successful and unsuccessful. So the, the first one that my friend called me about when I was a fact checker for Lisa for this book, I got to mm-hmm. write little tiny things in there for the book. Like I would talk to a college and then get off the phone and then I write a little blurb about what the party life was like at that school or just some nugget like that. I remember feeling like, Oh, I'm pretty good at this. And Lisa recognized it and said, actually said to my dad when he came and have lunch with me one day, just remember this, her saying, uh, we love Laura here. We got to find a way to tap that talent. And that's, something went off in my mind when she said that. I was like, yes, tap my talent. I knew I had talent, but I didn't know what kind of work would tap it. And I wanted someone to feed it to me, to show me what to do, like just hand me something that would require some form of self-expression on my part, writing some funny little thing, but not a dreadfully long thing that would keep me in a garret surrounded by a wastebasket full of crumpled drafts and tears. Then I went from there to spy magazine because lisa was offered a job as deputy editor there and she said let me see if we can get you an internship which she did i sucked at that internship i was just the world's worst intern and you know i i could 
reasonably Xerox the gossip packs. That was one of my jobs. Like you Xerox all the gossip pages from the different daily newspapers and staple them together, collate them, staple them together, put them on editor's desks. But beyond that, we were expected to pitch story ideas. They wanted interns to graduate to associate editors and the editors. It was an opportunity. They wanted us to be good and shine and, I just couldn't find any stories. I blew it at that, like kind of ran out the clock and kept trying out different jobs, like interviewing for different jobs that I thought might be it, like the thing that taps my talent. Like I interviewed to be an assistant for to Julia Roberts. And God knows why I thought that would be a good job for me. Because as I mentioned, not detail oriented, not good at anticipating a boss's needs, not good at any of that didn't get that. I tried being a clipper for Comedy Central and that was mm. fun. That was that involved watching a whole lot of stand-up comedy and finding 30-second bits that could stand on their own. It, that would play in between commercials and that I thought was the job for me. Didn't get it. And then I was hired by the ad side at Spy. One of the things they had me do, there was a bunch of admin that I wasn't great at. But they did have me do something that no one on the editorial side wanted to do, which was write an advertorial, which for anyone listening, is that part of the magazine that looks like part of the magazine? Advertorial. Print business from the mid to late 90s. The advertorial. Advertorial. They probably still have them. I think in like, if I look in a travel magazine, I'll see something Mm -hmm. that looks like an article and says at the time. Oh, there's sponsored content in the Wall Street Journal. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the thing. Yeah. Right. And I guess it's no longer called an advertorial, but that's what it was. And it was for doers. It involved writing a little essay. I wrote a a short essay on adulthood, which was ironic considering I was still in my childhood (laughs) bedroom Um, (laughs) and drinking Diet Sunkiss that my mother cleaned up and a quiz called, Do You Party Like Your Uncle Marty?, which was to determine whether you were a young hipster or an old fart loser. And if you were an old fart loser, of course, the remedy was to drink doers. And that would turn you into a young hipster. And then it had a a drink recipe that somebody else came up with in the sidebar. But that was my, I had a full page in Spy. And it was made up of short, funny things that I had written. And that was when I realized, oh my gosh, I got to write in my voice, you know, Mm -hmm. like me express myself, express my opinions and get paid for it. And I was like, there's something there. So that was the start. That was the tipping point where I was like, there's work out there that involves self-expression. And then probably the most fun and easiest form of that, that I ever got to do was after Spy and after another magazine job, which I sucked at and hated, that somebody from Spy called me up and he had he was working at this thing called a startup. And we had heard of startups. We didn't really know what they were. I don't think I do anymore today know what a startup is, but he, it was an online thing called the Transom. And it had a forum, which was basically the Flintstones version of a of Facebook, or actually it was called a bulletin board. And so that was an old version of the forum. And he hired me to just write on there, whatever I wanted 
to be a ringer and make it look like an active place, keep an active conversation going. And I got to write about whatever I wanted, which meant Melrose Place, Beverly Hills 90210. And yeah, those were the things that were going on in the world as far as I was concerned. And that's what I wrote about Mm -hmm. and got paid for it. Maybe one of the reasons, besides the fact that I love your snarky voice, and I've once said that snark doesn't scale, but in this case, it scaled pretty well. <laughs> because not only because I think it, there's equal doses or the appropriate ratio of snark to vulnerability, right? You're not just hiding behind your snark. You're putting yourself out there and calling yourself out. And I love the fact that you talk about working at Viacom at 1515 Broadway. There was a point when I was coming out of business school that I sent VH1 my resume, but I made a pop-up resume so like like pop-up videos (laughs) and of course they they acknowledged it but i never heard back from and all that stuff but it really evoked the same trying to find yourself trying to find work that was interesting and satisfying at the same time and by the way lisa bernbach has been on this show twice oh she has a big fan of her yeah yeah she came on she talked all about the i was like what does preppiness mean where did that come from and so she was really cool about that so i really it resonated with me so you eventually get to Viacom and you're writing on-air promos for for pop cultural things that you care about, that you yes. become obsessed with. How did that feel when you finally were like, oh, this is what I'm supposed to be doing? Like I'm, there's traction, there's, there's real, the rubber is meeting the road for your career. I think I knew as soon as I heard that that job existed. So I talked to a friend, once again from Spy, who was working at VH1 and writing promos. And I had lunch with him and I said, what does that mean? You're writing promos. And he said, well, I watch a bunch of TV and then I write these little, these short things that are, you know, they're during the commercials, they're commercials for the shows. I write short, funny things after watching a bunch of TV. And I said, hold on, (laughs) that's a job. And he said, yeah. Uh, And I said, I need that job. I have to have that job. Like I knew that was what I was meant to do. I always wanted to get paid to watch TV in some form. And that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was as close as anything I had ever heard of. And so he introduced me to the editorial director, who, by the way, was Lauren Zelaznik, who was, who went on to create Queer Eye for the Straight Guy and make oh, wow. waves, make huge waves in the TV world. It was the nineties and there was lots of money and she was like, sure, I can give you a writing assignment. And she did. She gave me, she assigned me my first promo for VH1. And as soon as I was writing it, I was like, this is what I am meant to do. Then when I got to work at Nick at night, where I had been a fan of the promos before I even knew what promos were. It's Mm -hmm. like, now I have reached the pinnacle. I have, I have my dream job. And that was really something like to, to feel like I was working my dream job because everyone had told me, you're not going to, these dream jobs don't exist. You are living in a fantasy world. You've got to work your way up. You've got to do all the hard stuff. You've got to, you know, maybe be a PA, be an assistant, be someone's uh, writing assistant on a show or something like that. And I knew those were all things I would fail at and never prove myself. And I actually ducked under the ropes, managed to duck under and get this dream job of writing. You know, it was in the voice of a network, so it wasn't quite yet writing in my voice, but I still got to share my worldview, put my spin on it. And I would go into recording sessions and the sound editor 
uh, at some of these would say, I knew this was a Laura Belgray spot. And that was so gratifying mm. to me to be recognized yeah. for my work. Now you've turned that into a business that has paid you over a million dollars a year. Yeah. Part of the through line to this book is being a late bloomer is not necessarily going on the, on the traditional track of, you know, you take the entry level job and you get promoted and then you're a director and then you're a VP, et cetera. How did you find your way to making a million bucks at 50 years old? Yeah, it was a windy path because I, I stayed in promos for a long time, probably way too long past the, past the point where I was complacent and way past the point where I was supposed to move up. Like either you become an editorial director and then VP and all those things you just mentioned, or you go into a, what would be considered a higher form of entertainment. Um, You write a screenplay, you write, someone said that like promos are the lowest form of entertainment while I was there. And I was like, Oh, that sucks. But (laughs) I stayed. And Another way would have been to write a a spec script and get a job on a show and probably move to L.A. I don't drive. It wasn't even in the car. Like, I didn't want that life. And I didn't think I had any ideas for a spec script. So I overstayed my welcome in promos and happened to segue into the online entrepreneur world because I met a friend in... I made friends with this woman in hip hop class at Crunch when I was in my as one does as one does hated her at first. She hit all the moves perfectly, had the best body, bounciest hair in the class, perkiest personality. And then I started talking to her one day and ended up liking her, becoming friends. We would start we would walk home together and talk about our work. And she at the time was bartending, had several bartending jobs and also was a becoming a life coach and building an email list and getting into the online business world. I had no idea what she was talking about when she talked about it, what she was doing. But years later, she asked me to speak at her first live event, which was for women entrepreneurs. It was called Rich, Happy and Hot Live. Her name is Marie Forleo. She is one of the biggest names in the online, like, female empowerment slash entrepreneur space, online learning space, and has created a course called B-School, Murray Forleo's B-School. So she asked me to speak at her first live event. And I gave a talk on, because I knew copywriting just in a very different form. It was called Five Secrets to Non-Sucky Copy. And (laughs) And then I turned that talk into a PDF And it became my opt-in. She told me when I was creating a website that I had to have an opt-in. I was like, a what-in? And she taught me this whole thing, how you set it up so that you give someone a freebie when they put in their email address. And she said, your list is your gold. Your email list is your gold. And I really didn't understand that concept. I didn't know why, to what end. But for once in my life, I followed instructions and started building an email list and started blogging because she told me I had to do that too. I know she knew what she was talking about. She made what seemed to me to be crazy money from doing I didn't know what. So I listened, built an email list, was blogging, and started to get people asking me, especially right after that talk I gave, can you help me with my copy, with my website copy? I don't know what to put on my about page. I'm a realtor. What do I say in my emails? 
etc. And I took on those clients and mixed them in with my promo with my TV promo clients because I was freelance permalance working for all different companies at the time. Eventually started really getting deeper into that world and taking on more clients from there. They would pay whatever I asked because they really valued the work and they got they could see a direct return on it. Whereas in promos, there's a ceiling to how much money you can charge and make. They have a budget and they also don't measure like they don't measure a direct correlation between what you do and the money that it brings in. So these clients were kind of where it was at and they were really satisfied, way less cool than TV work, but satisfying and gratifying. And we're able to say, oh my gosh, I'm getting so much more business since you helped me with my copy or I love my website mm-hmm. now and I get to send people to it. I got fired from my biggest, my biggest TV client, basically just let go. My, they told me they weren't renewing my contract. I was devastated. And that was the time when that was a moment when I said, okay, I've got to really, I have to replace that income. I have to really go for it with these online clients, these personal private clients who are entrepreneurs. And so I put up a services page, did all that and started getting a lot of clients. And I told my email, my small email list about it. I was like, oh, this is what she meant when she said the list is your gold. Cause then they started signing up for my services. I built a clientele and over the years built a healthy sized email list. By the time I was uh, in my 50th year, I was tired of doing that private client work and being a copywriter for clients. I didn't want to be known as anyone's copywriter anymore or anyone's secret weapon. I wanted to be known for me. I wanted to be referred to as, instead of like, this is Laura, she's my copywriter. I wanted people to say, this is Laura Belgray. Like, this is Laura fucking Belgray, a writer. Right. And so yeah. I pivoted then to using my emails and my blog posts for myself to make money for me. I did that by promoting my own courses. I created my own courses. I had created one with Marie Forleo called The Copy Cure, and that was already making money. And then once I really, really dove into promoting everything that I had to offer in my own emails and made that the main focus of my work, writing stories, like telling stories to my list and selling them things, that's when I made my first million. And it was in my 50th year long, long after most people in the (laughs) online space and my colleagues and these 20 year olds who sell lip gloss had made their millions and their multiple millions. So I really felt like I was late to the game, but it was satisfying in a way. It's like, good. I would hate to have hit my peak in like, and hit that milestone way earlier because it wouldn't have been as satisfying. And I probably would have done an MC hammer and spent it all on, you know, (laughs) cars for everyone in my family as if a million dollars would buy a bunch of houses and cars, but it pays a lot of rent. It pays a lot of rent. (laughs) Yes. It pays some mortgage payments. Exactly. So the book is about finding your own way about finding your path and not necessarily taking the traditional path. And that happens. And it's not just about your work life. It's about your love life. And there is, you know, you talk a lot about the boys you knew and, or how obsessed you were with people who had boyfriends in middle school and how that was a a defining attribute of self-worth to you. 
you've cataloged some of the guys you dated. Not all of them were great. One was a rabbi who doesn't want people to Google him and find out that he was a big time dry humper, which got a big, <laughs> my guy got a spit take on that one. You spent a couple of years dating a married guy. These are not like, this isn't the, the story of a person who's played her love life perfectly, mm-hmm. but in the end it all works out. What's your takeaway from the, from the ups and downs of dating and finding love in your life? My takeaway is that I needed to make all those mistakes to throw myself at those unworthy, undeserving guys (laughs) (laughs) to um, measure my self-worth for a while by how many guys found me sexually attractive enough to to let me service them. Um, And... (laughs) (laughs) And then I had to be, I think I had to be in a terrible, like the the biggest mistake was a real, a two and a half year relationship with my married salsa instructor, uh, which I knew from the get go was a bad idea. And yet I went into it anyway. I, I wanted that badly to dance better. And he was giving me free salsa lessons and I didn't want them to end. And then I just, I guess, convinced myself to fall in love with him to make it feel legit to me um, and not that transactional. But anyway, I I needed to be in that relationship, A, to know what was missing when I finally met Mm. the person who would become my husband, to know, like, this is what I was missing all along. And also, because they overlapped in a very ill-advised way, you know, all dating advice would say you have to be okay being on your own and you have to have space in your life for love to come in. Like no one would say, get involved with somebody while you're already with someone else. But because there was that overlap, it allowed me to be naturally a little bit distant and not clingy and not needy with that new person when we met. And to give him the space and give it the space to evolve rather than checking my emails constantly, like he would take two weeks to email (laughs) me back. And normally, if I hadn't been in this terrible relationship that I was obsessed with already, I would have been checking obsessively and maybe emailing him a little extra like, hey, just checking to make sure you got my last email, Um, which is really hot, right? And so... Always a turn on. To just, Desperation yeah. is such a turn on. Oh, yeah. yeah. The smell of it. I think just checking in is probably an aphrodisiac to anyone, right? So sure. yeah. <laughs> just checking in. So having that overlap and breaking all those rules of, you know, going against all the common dating advice, like you'll find love when you're in a place of self-love, when you love your love and respect yourself. My relationship the the one that ended up being the relationship defied all those rules. I mean, I we met mm. when I was in a sad, low, desperate place, and <laughs> <laughs> it worked out really well. You're going through. You're you're reading self help. You're joining cringy self help groups. Mm. What did you get out of those things? And then what was it in yourself that you realized that that you didn't need that? Well. I got into the cringy self-help group, which I can't legally call a cult, because a friend of mine, (laughs) a friend of mine was in it. She got me into it. First of all, their MO is getting people to recruit you. But also Mm -hmm. she had 
results in her life. She was living the kind of life that made me think, oh, maybe I should try that. She was becoming really successful in her career and she had just gotten engaged. And I was newly married, but had just was coming off of that high of planning the wedding and all of that momentum now had this postpartum feeling of what now? And I was in a creative rut at work. Um, This was when I was still doing promos and didn't know what was next. And so I got involved with it thinking it would turn me into a different person, someone really self-actualized who just knew what she wanted and went for it. So I stuck around. I mean, not, it was not my scene. There were mandatory hugs. There were workshops where (laughs) people would sit, people would stand up and say like, use these people's language, parrot it and say, Hey, I just wanted to say that I, I feel really well in myself. And then the leaders would say, hold on. I don't think you do feel well in yourself. I think you are doing feeling well in yourself. You're a doing being here and being present, but we think you're dialing an upset. And so they would just tear you down and then build you back up. It was that kind of thing. So icky to me. And I knew it was icky, Mm -hmm. but I just stuck around waiting for it to work because I kept saying, like, the more you come, the better it works. And one day you'll just feel it click in. So I was waiting for that moment for it to click in. And then after a long enough, there were sunk costs. I was like, well, I've been at this for so long. It's like when you're waiting for a subway and it's not coming, it's not coming, it's not coming. You're like, I'm not going to leave now. I've already spent, you know, been down here for 15 minutes. So I stayed with it for a good year and a half. I have a track record of staying in things for like a year and a half, two and a half years that aren't working out. And finally left after their Costa Rica retreat, which was just the height of it. I did so many things that felt so not me, culminating in this exercise where we had to, they divided the group in two and half of the group sat and the other half of the group stood on a platform in their swimsuits, like half naked in silence while the other half of the group stared at us from below, which is an unflattering angle to begin with. And um, of course, yeah, this was apparently an exercise in being seen. That's what they told us afterwards. And I just felt like, who am I that I just stood there because they told me to in my bikini in front of a bunch of people staring at me who then criticized me later, not my body, but like found things to criticize. I mean, the gloves were off in these things and people gave each other feedback that was just cruel. It was just like, here's what I hate about you, but it was positioned as feedback. So after that, I started to, and it's not like I left right away either. I just started to taper off and not go as frequently. You know, did I find myself in that? No, definitely not. But I'm not sorry that I went, like anything that I do is basically a story for later. So I'm not sorry that I was part of that for even for as long as I was, because it is a, I think a great story and part of my past that I kind of enjoy with all. I enjoy talking about it. The basic content of it was decent and worthwhile. They talked about being present and listening other things that were like helpful at the time, but yeah. So the president of Wesleyan calls and, (laughs) and says, Laura, we'd love for you to present the commencement address at next year's graduation. (laughs) 
you can't say blowjob in front of all the parents. Damn it. But what do you tell these graduates about your life and your lessons? Yeah, I think that the main thing I would tell them is this to circle back to the beginning of this interview is don't let fear of being disliked stop you from doing what you want to do, from creating, from being yourself, being in original, and that absolutely no movie, play, TV show, book, work of art, restaurant, even any kind of food that you love uh, for anything that you love or brand or personal brand for anything you love and think is God's gift to humanity for anything like that. There's somebody out there who says, eh, not for me, or might even say, I hate it. And that doesn't mean there's something wrong with that thing, with that creativity, with that creation, that expression of somebody and that they should tweak it. It just means nothing is for everyone and nothing great has ever been created in the spirit of saying, I don't want to annoy anybody. So Mm -hmm. I would say go forth with that knowledge. Don't be afraid to be disliked. Don't ever try to be for everyone and go ahead and be a disappointment for a year. (laughs) well i really enjoyed the book tough titties it's hilarious my guest is the author laura belgray laura where can our listeners find out more about you and your work Uh, thank you paul they can come to my digital home which is talkingshrimp.com which is spelled just like it sounds talking shrimp and you can find the book there tough titties is there but you can also go straight to toughtittiesbook.com (laughs) don't go to toughtitties.com. It wasn't available, which means, (laughs) yeah, I don't know where it's going to lead you. Uh, Probably the same place Uh, Googling saggy porn is going to take you. So don't Google either of those things. Toughtittiesbook.com. And then on Instagram, come find me at, at Laura Belgray.